Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hey guys, so my guest today is Terrence McFarland. Talk about the grass not always being greener, which is what I talk about a lot. Terrence is a great example of that. He was New York's fashion darling. He was one of the youngest fashion editors at the time for Interview Magazine. He was only 25 years old. And then he went on to become the fashion director of details and also worked for GQ. At a very young age, in the height of his career, I mean, he had so much potential to go even farther, he packed up and moved to California. We're going to find out what he's doing today and find out what prompted his move. Here he is, Terrence McFarland. Hey, Terrence, how are you? I'm good. How's it going? It's going great. Welcome to Rich in Life. Excellent. Thanks so much. I want to tell you, I'm a huge fan of your shows. Um, I'm a huge fan of Family Guy. I'm a huge fan of American Dad. I'm kidding. I know that's not you. And it's funny because I'm looking to see, guys, I have Terrence McFarland on the phone um, and you're Zooming. Where are you Zooming from, Terrence? Uh, I'm in Venice, California, in LA. How lovely. So it's funny. I was thinking, is he related to Seth McFarland? So I looked it up and I saw the spelling was different, but I'm like, how funny would it be if I just kept you on a few minutes, but I don't have the balls (laughs) to do that, to ask you about Family Guy and- Sure, sure, sure. But so I want to introduce you. Uh, you were New York's fashion darling. You were one of the youngest editors at the time for Interview Magazine. I think you were 25 years old. Is that right? Something like, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And then you went on to become the fashion director of details. Um, you really were in this scene at such a young age in the fashion scene. You had such a great job. I mean, you weren't a low level stylist or an assistant, you had the career. And you also had a very famous boyfriend, or I don't know, very famous, but Ross Blechner, who sure. you know I know as well. It's funny that I never ran into you, but I ran into Ross a thousand times and never knew I was the same person, which, <laughs> which I want to find out about that later. But um, and I and I've joked about that on the podcast as well. But um, yeah, you picked up you picked up and left everything behind to move to LA. That's true. Yeah. What made you do that? I mean, because to this day, first of all, how did we not cross paths? That's one thing I want to know. I mean, were you a workaholic? I was definitely a workaholic. I mean, I'm sure we were probably in the same room at the same time, right? I mean, those New York fashion circles were so tight, but, you know, constantly fleeting and all the little, you know, clicks and networks and all of that. So I'm I'm sure our paths crossed at some point. And I'm sure you went to all the fashion shows, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you remember them. They were like yeah. parties. They were unbelievable. Mark Jacobs, um, yeah. Todd Oldham, Isaac Mizrahi. I mean, I know today they're not designing mm-hmm. anymore, but those were, I mean, to me, some of the best fashion shows. They were like parties. They were they were like parties. I mean, and they were the production design. I mean, it was an amazing time, as you know, to be in New York in the 90s, pre-globalization, where budgets weren't what they are these days right, right. yeah <laughs> you know they paid I, I for mean, models they paid for models i mean they paid for car service they paid for you know all, yeah. all of those things but you know you brought up some of those designers i mean i was at the first alexander mcqueen show in new york so you know it was it was such a height of creativity and just over the top fashion shows and the parties that would follow and and that life and that lifestyle. It was great. Was that the one with the water where they walked through all the water? He had one of his shows that he walked through all the models, had to walk through puddles of water with the clothes was, on. 
His shows were crazy. I mean, I, I will say I do like my designers, you know, a little bit of a heroin addict. I don't mind the needle in the arm. It really makes them very creative. Mm -hmm, for sure. For sure. Yeah, you know, and I'm still watching Vogue.com. I'm still, you know, keeping up with who, who's doing what and the, on the show scene. But going back to your, your question about sort of packing up and, and leaving. So, yeah, so I was a fashion editor and a fashion director, and I'd, I'd worked really hard to get to that point. My first job was working in display at Polo Ralph Lauren in the mansion um, back in 1987. And so I was a freelance, you know, display artist and stylist and, and all of that. So I had, you know, uh, uh, let's call it a workaholic, ambitious uh, rise. Um, and the reason I started working at Interview is I'd met all those folks when I worked at Calvin Klein in the PR department. So I had kind of this ascent where I was living the fashion dream that, you know, young high school Terrence had had in his mind of living in the big city and, and working for magazines or working for designers. Um, and then after details and I was doing some freelance styling, I was doing a lot of red carpet dressing kind of was, it was that moment where red carpet dressing became a thing and publicists and uh, actresses realized that those appearances could be press opportunities. And I was working for one client and it was the end of the retail working day. Uh, and I remember being in the taxi cab with the trunk filled with uh, garment bags and the cab slammed, slammed on the brakes. And I had been in this like frantic mood and I'm a, I'm a pretty calm guy. I don't typically get worked up. And I was like in a, in a state and the, the uh, cab slammed on the brakes. And I sort of jolted back and I was like, wait, what am I freaked out about? What is this moment? And I was trying to get uptown because Barney's didn't have the right song, but I figured Bloomingdale's <laughs> might. And I realized that my whole world revolved around getting the right undergarment for an actress to wear at a red carpet appearance that night. And I sort of leaned back and I went, I'm done. Come like, on. That I'd was like, the pivotal point. That was the, the moment. I mean, I mean, there was, you know, it took, I know it took, uh, you know, a while after that, and I'm sure there were a few yeah. things leading up to it, but that was the decision. That was in the, the taxi. In the taxi, I was like, "What is? What is my life? My life is about getting the right undergarment for this actress to wear under." Do you remember the actress? Tonight? I do. Who was it? Marissa Tomei. Oh wow! I love and Marissa. she. I, I adore yeah, Marissa. She was a joy of a client. Uh, and I, I, I've seen her a couple of times in LA since. Um, and it, it had nothing to do with her. It just had to do with, oh, I'm ready for the next challenge in my life. Of and course. I had applied to CalArts. Um, I used to do, before Calvin Klein, I was at Jeffrey Bean doing PR and creative services there. And I'd applied to CalArts at the time and gotten accepted. Um, and I turned it down because of the opportunities the fashion business was offering me. And so kind of embedded or the subtext of that, that decision in the cab was, I'm gonna go back to school. I wanna get my master's degree. I wanna be a, you know, a different kind of creator. And I went back and got my master's in, in film and theater. And it's so impressive. And I think what gets me the most is that you never got sucked into palling around with Calvin and Ross and going to the Bowery Bar, going to the Swamp in the Hamptons, which is where I used to see them regularly. I mean, I already had my own business. I, you know, Chucky's was my shop. And, you know, Marissa was a great client of mine, Marissa Tomei. We used to joke around a lot. And, you know, I had a lot of, you know, back in those days, people used to pay for shoes. 
You know that, Terrence. I mean, so <laughs> I back do. in the day, it was great because people actually paid for shoes. And um, so it was great. But And I noticed that they were always palling around Calvin and Ross with a whole entourage of these young boys. And But you never got suckered into that. No, I mean, that, that was the thing. I, I met Ross at an interview party. I think Ingrid Sushi, my boss, realized that he was recently single and that I was single. And it was a Valentino uh, dinner party, and she seated us next to one another. And, you know, we, we both were sort of used to those dinners where you're seated around strangers, and we started chatting. And both of us kind of went, oh, hi. Who are, uh-huh. who are who are you? Um, you know, and I'm not going to talk about the other folks that Ross had dated, but suddenly, like, you know, we we had similar lives and similar life paths in terms of the folks we were hanging out with. But as with many, you know, you've experienced in the Hamptons, there are those guys who are sort of looking for that meal ticket. Yep. And that was not who I was then. It's not who I am now. And, and you didn't so need it. You had a great job. I had a great job. We and you know Ross and I dated for a year, and we had a great time. And sure, there were you know there were dinners with Calvin and Sandy, and you know the the assorted folks. And for a time when you know I would go out uh, and see Ross at the beach the weekends, there was water skiing with Bianca Jagger, and you know all of all of those you know related folks because of their network of influence and circle of friends um I, it was very funny the first time calvin and i saw each other socially because he knew me as an employee right <laughs> years before so it was a funny it was a funny first meeting he was like wait do i i'm like yeah i used to work for you he's like all right hi <laughs> <laughs> and they knew how to party didn't they know how to party i mean back then you can slap someone on the ass and laugh about it and continue to party and have fun i can't imagine what it's like today who, who, who knows? Not, not, not my world. I mean, you know, depends right. on, on how you define the word party. You know, I, at that time I was not a drinker. I didn't do any drugs. Um, no, that's not what of- I mean. Just so you know, to clarify, that's not what I mean by party. Okay. I was never that kind of a partier either. I drank, yeah. but I never did drugs. So I just meant there were no, I don't know, political correctness, the protocols. You didn't have to walk on eggs. You really could just be yourself and have fun. Sure, but I, you know, I, I yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll agree with that. There was a different level of of awareness of what was appropriate. Yeah, yeah. You can tell I'm not a very um, correct person. I'm not very politically correct. I say what's on my mind, and I always feel like I'm treading on thin ice with everybody. So sometimes I have Brad in the background going like this to me: "Shut up." Yeah. <laughs> all good. All good. All good. I know it is. Oh, you're you're a gentleman. Um, I wanted to also find out. So I I still didn't understand why you left. So that was the pivotal point, trying to get Marissa Tomei, her thong, all the way uptown when the taxi almost crashed and you were like, what am I doing with my life? Now, it's funny, you were so young at the time. I'm still saying, what am I doing with my life? I'm saying (laughs) it right now while I'm talking to you. I'm thinking to myself, what are you going to do with your life? And my life is what, three quarters over at this point? I don't know. Okay. So when, after you said that to yourself, what happened after that? I mean, did you give, uh, it took time before you gave notice and Moving to LA, well, breaking at, up at that with point, Ross. I, <laughs> I had long since broken up with Ross. Ross and I had, had parted ways long before that. Um, but I was freelance at the time. So I was freelance as a stylist doing photo shoots and, and personal appearance stuff. So I reapplied to CalArts. I got accepted. Um, and part of the reason, you know, in in that that moment, in that realization, going, okay, I want to go back to school. I knew that if I tried to go to school in New York, 
there were still going to be too many opportunities to pull me back into the fashion business, right? So I knew that I needed to make a clean break and leave the city. And so I only applied to CalArts. I got accepted again. Um, and then just up and moved to Los Angeles. But it, it might be helpful for a bit of context. Is I grew up in a military family. So every one to three years, I would move. So in my in my DNA, in my lived experience, I was used to major changes every one to three years for the entire first 18 years of my life. So that idea of you know the kind of the tumult, the oh, what's this world? What's this environment? Who's who am I in this world? Is just a part of my makeup. And so the decision to leave New York was like, okay, I had the career that I had set out to have. I'm ready for a new and different challenge, a new and different location. So I applied to CalArts, I got in, I moved, I got my you know a, apartment uh, in West Hollywood. Did um, you know anybody? Did you know anyone? Did you have family? I didn't have family. It was really just a fresh start. Wow. You know, okay. I knew the some military folks. family explains a lot that you weren't afraid. Yeah, yeah. You know, because part of part of what that training as a military kid does is, at least for me, I would be a wall hugger. So anytime I'm in a new room, a new environment, I sort of lean, you know, I sort of find a wall to suss out what's happening in this environment. What are the dynamics? Who are the, you know, we were talking about the clicks before, like who are, who are the clicks? Where do I and my skills, my personality fit into this world? You're an observer, right? Very much so. Yeah. I'm an observer too. Yeah, an observer and a systems thinker, yeah. right? Like when I'm at the restaurant, I'm figuring, like, I want to see, like, which server likes which host, which manager, like, what's the dynamic? How's it all playing out? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you get accepted to CalArts, you move to West Hollywood. How long are you in school for? I mean, at this point, you're now in your middle 20s or late 20s. Yeah, I turned I turned 30 at CalArts. So I wow. was at CalArts for five years. I did two years and got my bachelor's degree and three years and got my master's degree. Um, you yeah. did what Brad did. I don't know yeah. if, yeah, you did exactly what he did. When I met him, he had come back from modeling, went back to school. And I'm like, yeah. what the fuck? Now you're going to school when we're dating? <laughs> Same thing as you in 30s. Okay, so I'm sorry, continue. So yeah, so yeah. you... In your 30s, you're in college, you, you know, and what happens when you finally graduate and get your master's? And how old are you yeah. by the time all of it is finished, all the schooling? Yeah, uh, I think I was 32 by the time I got my master's degree. Um, I had fallen in love in L.A. I was a Valley stepdad, you know, practically the you know white picket fence with a stepchild. Is that uh, with Dennis? Dennis Meal? Uh, that was with Dennis, yeah. Okay. Or Ed, that and, is with Dennis. That was and uh, is with Dennis. Uh, was past tense. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, it's okay. Juicy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so graduated with my, my degree. My personal work as an artist was nonlinear, site-specific experimental theater uh, and, and personal narrative documentary film. And I was like, okay, I've graduated. What am I going to do? Where am I going to get a paycheck? Uh, and so there was a brief moment where I panicked and I was like, what am I doing? You know, how am I going to make a living? Uh, and there was a, there was a moment, well, there's two, two things to, to mention midway through 
my time at CalArts, friends introduced me to Jeffrey Kalinske and David Rubenstein from Jeffrey in New York. And so there was the summer before Jeffrey opened in the meatpacking district that I consulted and worked with those guys. How crazy. So I, so I helped them get the store open, uh, merchandising. I was kind of assistant buyer. And I had such a good time that that fall, I was back and forth between LA and New York every week. Now, were um, you flying private? Because I know Jeffrey, I mean, from <laughs> when I remember, was only flying private. He offered me a ride, I think, from Milan to Paris once because I had to miss a show and go back to New York. He's like, well, wh- why don't you come with us on the plane? I literally looked at them. I'm like, and I, I didn't say it out loud. I'm thinking, you're fucking flying private all everywhere. Why aren't I hanging out with you guys? Did you this was pre-private. Okay. This is before I think I, was, he sold the company. Exactly. This, sold was, it, yeah. this is as he was opening up okay, the New yeah. York store. So I, I helped them get that open. You did a great yeah. job. I mean, you guys did a great job. I mean, Jeffrey's really from the very beginning, I have to say, I mean, the stories I have, and I've spoken about it, even on the podcast, shopping with friends and Jeffrey's, the funny things that Mm -hmm. went on there, but you guys put that on the map very quickly. I mean, it helped that Jeffrey's dad also was a, was a very, you know, old longtime retailer, fashion retailer. But anyway, so I'm sorry, continue. I I keep veering off. So it's okay. It's all good. good. You're going back and forth from LA to New York. You're opening up Jeffrey's with Jeffrey Kalinske. Yep. Yeah, and and realized that yet again I, I was done. I, I'd helped them get the store open. I wanted to be getting my degree, but it was like kind of a final swan song where it was like, oh, do I do I want to do anything in the fashion business? Like, no, this was super fun. It was like the ideal job. They were great to work for. It was so fun to be opening up that store, you know, riding the Samsonite bike around there. You know, I was, you know, I was serving up shows, putting on looks and walking the runway when we had the live DJ, all, you know, all those things back in the day. Um, so when I graduated, I was like, okay, what am I going to do for, for work? And there was a magazine in, uh, LA called LA Stage, which was tied to a nonprofit art service organization called LA Stage Alliance. And I saw that they had a marketing position open. I was like, oh, you know, this is in the arts where I want to be working. I've got PR and creative uh, services and marketing skills. I was an arts journalist. Um, you know, I was a journalist with details and interview or write stories. And so I applied. And turns out that one of my uh, professors at CalArts was on the board. And another guest um, at one of those classes was the board chair. And so I had had conversations with them when I was at CalArts. And so I took a job doing marketing for this arts nonprofit. Uh, And one week in, the director of operations is fired. Two weeks in, the executive director, the head of the organization, was asked to step down. And suddenly, I was the marketing director of an organization with no leadership. There was wow. no, no nobody above us except the board of directors. So the board why, would was, it, why, why was he asked to step down? Was there a reason? The, yeah, there was some financial mismanagement. Oh, okay. Um, that type of thing. Uh, and so the board. And, and this is a paying job, right? I, I'm a little ignorant yeah. when it comes to, even though it's a nonprofit yeah. organization, it's still a paying job. Yeah, this was like a, a $1.2 million arts, arts nonprofit with a staff of, I want to say, five or six at the time, all, you know, full time. 
Right. Okay. Um, and so the board was running things for about three months and the board chair took me out to lunch and she said, I, I know you, I knew you as a student. I think that you can run this organization. We, you know, because of the financial stuff going on, we can't afford you to pay a full ED salary, but we're willing to take the risk on you if you're willing to take the risk and take the salary hit. And I'm like, Sure. I'm, you know, I'm starting out in the field. Suddenly, I'm, I'm given the opportunity to to run an arts nonprofit. And you took, uh, and you took a salary hit. I took a salary hit, uh-huh. um, and realized that you know I could grow with the organization, and so I ended up staying with LA Stage Alliance for eleven years. Okay, so can you tell me and the listeners what did you do yeah. for them for New York uh, for what was it Stage Alliance? Yeah, LA Stage Alliance. LA State, LA Stage Alliance. What did you do yeah. for them exactly? So the yeah, so the the, the closest equivalent. I'll, I'll explain it kind of in uh, indirectly. So the closest equivalent would be TDF in New York. You know the TKTS booth. Yes. So we are the uh, LA Stage Alliance is the Los Angeles version of Theater Development Fund which is the parent organization that runs the, the discount ticket booth. Got it. So, but it's not just the ticket booths. It's everything behind no. it, behind the scenes of it. And exactly. So it's like, a, like, it. so like a chamber of commerce mm-hmm. that brings together lots of different organizations. It's like that, but for the arts. So LA stage lines had about 300 member organizations from the largest theaters to the midsize, to the smallest mom and pops. Um, and we helped them with collaborative marketing, discount tickets. We had, uh, for a long time, LA Stage Magazine, and we ran the Ovation Awards, which are the LA version of the Tony Awards. Okay, wow. Yeah. Did you work on the theater aspect, on the arts side of it, working with actual, you know, producers and maybe plays and stuff like that? Or was it mainly the business end of it? Mostly the business end of it. So, so of course, we, you know, we interacted with all of the artistic directors, but we weren't directly involved in the art making itself. We helped the administrative things. So like, you know, we developed a CRM system and a ticketing system uh, with uh, in partnership with a technology company, that type of thing. So we were trying to, we used to say, we'd like to raise the floor for the entire performing arts community for them to expand their reach uh, and increase access and awareness. And how is it going now in LA? I mean, I, 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 uh, Brad and I went one time, we went to see a show called Wishful Drinking with Carrie Fisher. It was a great show. I mean, it really was. And, you know, I'm not such a huge fan of the theater. I always say Mm -hmm. it's like an expensive, uncomfortable nap for me, you know, but, you know, listen, I get people love it. People love the theater. Mm -hmm. It's not my thing, but I did love that show as a one woman show. And it was Mm -hmm. based on, you know, her true life, which was great. But I don't, I, I don't know how big the theater life is in LA. Has it gotten, has it gotten a lot stronger over the decade or over the decades? Well, I mean, the the community is vast, given the creative population that lives here. You know, there are so many folks in the, you know, entertainment industry who are wanting to be seen, who are wanting to to make work. So the the theater community in Los Angeles has been vast for a long time. Um, Like the show you mentioned, given the notoriety and celebrity status, there are often folks who get a little bit more ink, get a little bit more attention because they've got some fame from Hollywood and that type of thing. I mean, obviously the pandemic was a really, really hard hit on the community, but folks are doing, uh, I know there's a lot of influx of federal and state money to support the arts nonprofit scene in Los Angeles, particularly theater. You know, folks are uh, mounting outdoor stages or doing site-specific work in non-traditional venues. 
Right. But there aren't um, yeah. many uh, L.A. actors, like big actors that would want to do plays in L.A., are there? It seems like if they do theater, they want to be in New York City. No, you're 100% wrong. <laughs> I am. Okay, good to know. So it's yeah. true. So I am. So there are big actors yeah. that do want to do theater in L.A.? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and many of them will, you know, will start their own theater companies or be co-artistic directors because oftentimes with their, their shooting schedule, they can't be directly involved. So you've got right. some folks who will start their own company or, you know, folks who were with a theater company and then became famous and then they stay involved, you know, and, and lead the benefit concerts for fundraisers, that type of thing. Will they so act in, will they act in them as well or, and they yeah, will. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. For sure. Interesting. And, totally. but you don't deal with that. You don't deal with that end at all. Somebody else deals with that end. Uh, when you say that end, what do you mean? Of the artistic part of, you know, orchestrating the, um, you know, what they want to put on and which theater and all of that. Uh, not when I was at LA stage. Right. Um, you know, the, the closest we came to getting involved is we were the um, organization that managed the Ovation Awards. Right. So like the Tony voters in New York, we would oversee the ovation voters and the process by which they were voting for the awards. Do you ever miss New York City? I mean, I don't necessarily mean now during the pandemic, right after the pandemic, but I'm saying you've been in L.A. for so long. Have you missed New York? Did you get the itch to come back? I mean, I go back and see friends from from time to time. I was there for, you know, such a such an important pivotal moment in in my career. I sort of, you know, I felt like I did it. I felt like I I set out what I want to I wanted to accomplish in New York. You know, I and for the last six years, I live at the beach like I I love that vibe. I love Venice Beach. Although the last time I was there, I could barely see the beach. There were all tents blocking my view. Homeless people living in tents were blocking my view, but it is so beautiful. I mean, the vibe is so great there. Totally. I love how walkable it is. Yes, certainly the unhoused population on the beach is a huge issue that LA's and, you know, folks are contending with across the country. Do you still keep in touch with Ross or Calvin or any of your old friends? Uh, a little bit. I was in touch with uh, Ross recently. A, a dear friend of his just passed away. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, my, my best friend who is a designer uh, whom I've known since 1989 when I lived in, in Florence, did a semester abroad. We're still in touch. So yeah, I'm still in touch with some of the folks from, from that world. Did you ever get any art from Ross? Did he give you any art? I did. Oh, good. I, I was reading that some of his art goes up to 200,000. So I was like, oh, I hope Terrence got some art. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it was, I mean, uh, I adore and I love Ross. Um, you know, I look forward to seeing him next time I see him. But it was really amazing for me and maybe speaks to also why I made that transition, watching him work and watching the process of him creating that magnetic light field that existed in all of his works was super exciting to me. So I've always been drawn to and driven to understand the process, right? The artistic process, the, you know, and that's kind of the, the through line of, of my career is like uh, understanding how we see ourselves and one another in the world. Yeah. He had a great piece. I think it was in Elmo's. Is is that the restaurant? One of his uh, pieces hung in a restaurant, Elmo's, I think. And it's still there for 20 years. It's been there on, on 7th Avenue, right near where Barney's used to be. Okay. In Chelsea in Chelsea. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a shame when we talk about it, when we talk about Jeffries and Barney's, it's just so sad that now we look back and there's no place to really congregate anymore. I mean, aside from shop, I mean, shopping was such an important part of the culture in yeah. New York City. And now sure. it's like, you know, it wasn't even shopping. Even if you couldn't afford to spend that much money, you'd go and you'd see people. It was just socializing. And I think um, that's what I miss most about New York City now. I mean, even in my own shop, we do more shipping out than we do with people coming into the shop. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you know, what are your thoughts about Dover Street Market? It sort of feels like they kind of took a little bit of that vibe kind of similar similar space to kind of the social and the more experimental side of Barney's. I mean, Barney's also had, you know, the core merch and product. Yeah. It's different. You know, it's funny. I loved going there and it was great, but I didn't see myself going back again once I went there. You know, sure. there was something about, you know, I guess it was a smaller, it was a smaller version of it. And they didn't mm-hmm. have a coffee shop. They didn't, it wasn't really a place where you can hang out. It was really Got a place it. to shop, look around and, and that was it. And sure. now, you know, when we, first of all, we don't shop that much anymore, but it, we lived right near Barney's. Even if we weren't shopping, we, you know, go for coffee to, to Barney's, we'd have a drink. I don't know. It's just, it's, it was just, you know, what's in LA now? What do you guys do in LA for shopping and for, I mean, pre COVID let's say. Uh, I mean, pre COVID, I mean, Dover street open. I mean, way back in the day, I was a big, you know, Maxfield's fan and Fred Siegel. And I feel like it's really become much more individual boutique centered um, or centric. Um, I know the Dries Van Noten just opened a shop, but I, you know, I've become a bit of a habitual uniform kind of guy. Like, you know, I'll buy my Rick Owens tanks online and there's a uh, RTH is a cute little boutique that was on uh, La Cienega, I think. And he's now moved and opened up a shop down in Palm Springs. So yeah, I mean, you know, after the closing of Barney's in LA, I think that was, you know, part of the, part of the shift, but LA is so spread out. It just didn't have the same kind of shopping energy, uh, energy or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of cohesiveness that you got in New York along with Fifth Avenue, for example. Right. I don't know if it's an age thing, but I'm very similar to you. I've become very ritualistic in the way I dress. I kind of like in a uniform and unless mm-hmm. something really, you know, has holes in it. I mean, I always say I'm the only weirdo that gets holes in their designer clothes or any of my clothes, but the designer mm-hmm. clothes, it's even weirder because it's supposed to be made you know, it's supposed to be like it was so well made. And yet, you sure. know, I get holes in my shirts. My Tom Brown shirts have holes in them. But Brad says it's because I wear them a lot and wash them a lot. So I don't know. But I, I don't know if it is an age thing, but I've become very, you know, wearing a uniform. Do you think it's an age thing for you or do you just think it's the times? Fashion is I, I, not what it used to be. It's not as experimental as it used to be. Well, I, th- you know, I think for, for those of us who've locked into, you know, a certain type of look or style, it releases the cognitive load, right? We don't, if we don't have to think about what we're wearing in, you know, a broad sense, like, oh, I sort of know my standard parts, then it just, it makes the day easier. You know, we can put our, put our brains to use in other ways. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I agree with you. And I don't think it's so much of an age thing. I think it really is where we are with fashion today. It's not as experimental as it used to be when I, when I guess when I started out or even 15 years ago, People used to buy so many different kinds of shoes for all different moods. And now I find, you know, people come in for comfort 
And that's it. You know, it's mainly comfort. They won't buy three or four useless shoes that they're going to wear once in a blue moon anymore. Things have gotten so expensive, I think is part of the problem as well. I think, I think that, yeah, I would agree. I think it, it, it definitely has to do with price point and sort of, you know, folks investing in like a singular statement piece. Yeah. So wait, I want to go back to interview for a second. Did you ever meet mm-hmm. Andy? Were you there pre-Andy? Or during Andy? Oh, post-Andy. Yeah. So you never got yeah, a so, chance to meet him. Yeah. So, so I worked with Sandy Brandt and Ingrid Sishi. So Ingrid was the editor and Ingrid and Sandy were a dream to work with. You know, I, I hadn't worked in journalism before uh, and they really took me under their wing and allowed me to soar. Yeah. It's, it's also funny because working on third Avenue in the shop, I would always, I would always see Andy walking his dog. He lived on mm-hmm. the Upper East side. And mm-hmm. for people listening, I'm talking about Andy Warhol. I know you've heard me mention it before. And it really was the good old days of New York city because, you know, he'd be walking his dog nonchalantly and Francesco Scavolo, the photographers of Cosmo would be walking mm-hmm. in the other direction and they would sit and chat and I'd be staring out the window thinking, what are they talking about? I'm dying to know. <laughs> and then, you know, we advertised at one point, in interview magazine and Andy okay. at the time would have lunch with all of the people that would advertise. Mm-hmm. I never made it to the lunch. We oh, never no. were able, yes, we were never able to lock it in. And it, it's a regret of mine. I'm not going to say one of my biggest regrets, but it's a regret. I had this opportunity sure. to sit with a guy who I really admired and liked and who was so mysterious to me. Sure. Well, it's funny you brought up Scavulo. I worked in Scavulo's studio. I was his assistant to Sean Burns, his partner. And oh, so I know I Sean very well. Yeah, please, so wait, please you, give him my best. I yeah, haven't I seen him. He moved out of the city years ago. Okay, yeah, I, I, I used to assist Sean uh, kind of when I was freelancing back in the, the early days. So, so all those Cosmo covers and when, you know, Kevin O'Quan did Roseanne Barr's makeup, so she then <laughs> transitioned her face to look like that makeup yep. uh, and others. But the, Did you know Kevin you, too? Yeah. Kevin O'Quan, yeah, yeah, me too. What a nice guy. Yeah. That was oh another God, death. A dream. What a nice guy. I mean. So so talented, so lovely, so much fun, such great energy on set. Um, but you brought up you brought up the 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 you know how Andy ran the magazine and you know bringing the advertisers together with the stars and Ingrid and Sandy continued in that tradition. It was one of the most exciting things is you, you would have, you know, up and coming authors, you know, with up and coming musicians and designers and that type of thing. I remember we had a dinner, I think it was at in Ingrid's house and they were like, Oh, there's this up and coming singer. We're going to have her sing. She's from Alaska. She's been touring around the country in her van. And it was Jewel. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. And so yeah. like, you know, we, we show up for this person that's no, that no one had heard of. And then Jewel comes out and sings with that, you know, beautiful ethereal beautiful voice, voice of hers. Yeah. You know, and then becomes a, a superstar. So there were many moments like that during my time at interview where, you know, earlier you were talking about the parties. It's like so much of kind of being ahead of what was happening culturally happened at the magazine right because you're you're planning things three months out to cover and what was incredible you guys orchestrated a lot of it as well by having these parties and bringing people like jewel you guys orchestrated it it's not like today where you have to be an influencer and have three million followers to now get a job as a model you know this is what designers are now looking for it was the other way around totally totally think of that what do I think about it? influencer culture? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, You're it, too nice. You're not going to say anything negative. It, so let me rephrase it. I need something negative about the influence, influence culture. 
I need something negative, please. You can't be so nice. It drives me crazy. I'm not a huge Instagram follower. I'm not, yeah. I can't, I can't go along with it. It's very, it's, it, it doesn't appeal to me. So it seems like homework for me. It's more like homework. So sure. when my team tells me I have to be more present on Instagram, I just politely tell them to fuck off and I don't do it at all. But you know, there is something to be said about having to give free shoes to people that might be sitting in a studio apartment just because she has a lot of followers and sending out free shoes to people. It drives me crazy. What do you think? Totally. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a big fan of influencer culture, Unless their influence, unless their their reach has to do with some real thinking or some real accomplishments beyond just their ability to garner more followers. So if they've got a point of view, if you know they're they're standing up for causes, if they are you know artistically or creatively inclined, um, yeah. But just you know, just having followers because of a certain aesthetic, certain way of, of dressing, you know, a certain, let's call it, you know, sexiness, thirst trap pictures, that type of thing. I'm not a big fan of those, yeah. those accounts. So do, I'm curious if you knew, if you know, Scott lips from back in the day, remember Scott, he was the drummer for Courtney love. The name's super familiar. I don't think we yeah. knew each other personally. Yeah. He was great. He was on the show. He was also, so I had a lot of stories. It's hard to get, it was hard to get him out of him. He's ah. also, <laughs> any favorite photographers that you have? Uh, from when I was working or yes. these days? Both actually, both. From yeah, first uh, when you were, back when you were working and now these days. Sure. I mean, I came up with Joshua Jordan, uh, you know, in the nineties, we'd have really, really fun times working together. Um, you know, Back in the day, my my favorite were Pierre and Gilles, uh, the French duo. I tried to get them to do some work and uh, with details didn't come to pass. Um, but probably of those days, my absolute favorite was Richard Burbridge. Um, his sense of sort of precision and light and sort of like a new sense of beauty. You know, he's done a lot of ID magazine covers uh, and a lot of, a lot of beauty work, but Richard Burbridge was an amazing, amazing collaborative partner. Do you know, Brad, who was the photographer that we met when we went to that Wednesday night beige party in LA? Remember we went back to his house. It said Jennifer Lopez bought this house. Oh, Tony Duran. Got it. Do you know Tony uh, Duran? Uh, I don't know him personally, but I know he lives friend. in LA. Yeah, we had a great night with him. Yeah. Of course, you know, we walked into, I, I don't remember what restaurant it was, but it was the beige of LA, I guess. Uh -huh. and Tony and Brad saw each other. Anyway, that whole night, he, he's so eccentric. He didn't drive, so we had to drive him home. He lived in Bel Air. We wound uh -huh. up going into his house. In the front of his house, there's a plaque that says uh, J-Lo. Did it say J-Lo or Jennifer Lopez? I think it's a... H-J-L. Yeah, it's a J-Lo bought this house because- Hilarious. The house that J-Lo bought because when he was working, he saw the house, he couldn't afford it. And then at the very last minute, he did a no, cover. No, no, no. no, that's not the story? No. Tell me what the story is. His agent left with all of his money. He got none of it and he had the mortgage due and he called J-Lo and said, do you have any projects? He shot the calendar for her and that paid for his mortgage or for some of that. There you go, you see? You I would have given a false story. Would you say, Brad? <laughs> oh, I'm not repeating that. He said I might have to repeat it. No. So, no, what Brad was saying is that his manager took off with his money. He couldn't pay the mortgage. He called Jennifer Lopez, is what Brad said, and said, do you have any work for me? And then he shot 
the cover, her calendar. He shot her calendar. Anyway, we wound up staying in the house till the next day. So yeah, he would disappear, go into another room, talk on the phone at three, four in the morning. We would flip through his books and see uh, Sharon Stone, Tom Cruise, all these famous people. Forget about the fact that he shot them. He shot them in his house. And the reason why we knew that, we saw the background of his bathroom. Tom Cruise was shooting a thing in his bathroom. I'm like, that's his bathroom. So it goes to show you, the guy was so eccentric, he didn't leave his house. And that was part of his, I guess, his shtick. And if they wanted to use Tony Duran, they had to go to his house in Bel Air to be shot. So we thought that was crazy. You know, things, that was a New York moment. Even though it happened in LA, that's the kind of, that's the way we lived back in the day. Am I right, Terrence? Totally. Well, and it's funny because, you know, the one photographer I didn't bring up, but a similar night, you know, those parties and the nightclubs and the dance floors were where you would meet people. And, you know, I, when I moved to New York, as I mentioned earlier, I I didn't drink or do any drugs. So my catharsis came from the dance floors. And so I would just throw it down and leave it, you know, leave it all in a puddle. Uh, (laughs) And, and I I remember in the, in the early days, right. When I moved to New York, I want to say this is probably like 1990, 91. I remember seeing somebody across the dance floor sort of, you know, taking me in regarding me, but with a very hyper vigilant eye. Uh, and it ended up being David LaChapelle, wow. <laughs> the photographer. Yeah. And so we, we ended up dating for a little while, but you know, that- Wait, that you moment- dated David LaChapelle? Yeah. That's funny, Brad, yeah. did you know that? Cause you know David LaChapelle too. Brad knows David LaChapelle as well. We've, we've run into him downtown in I think Soho or the meatpacking, I don't remember. So wait, so you dated him too, for how long did you date David? Uh, I think David and I probably dated maybe six months. This was wow. er- er- early really? New York, early New York years. Uh, for me, but uh, well, actually, Brad Brad attended the party that we threw with David LaChapelle at Details. Uh, when I was at Details, we did a Halloween party um, at the Sherry Netherlands. So it was like downtown goes uptown. Yes, uh, that and- was the picture. I saw the picture that was of you and him. How yeah. funny. Leave it to Brad to be able to find a picture of you and him together at that party. <laughs> what year was that? Do you remember, Brad? Was it before me and you? Yeah. Or before you and I? Before you and I. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, but I thought you were living in London or Milan before, right? Before I met you. I don't know. We'll figure it out later. We're not a straight couple, so we have no idea when we met. (laughs) Exactly. I want to know about your personal life now. So are you in a relationship? I'm curious. Uh, I am not. I am single. But you were in a long time. You were in a long relationship, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was with Dennis for 11 years. Okay. And are you still close to uh, his child or your stepchild? How do do you refer to? Uh, Yeah, I'm actually, I'm having dinner with Kate tonight. Um, Yeah, they have moved back to Los Angeles. Um, They were living in the Bay Area for quite a long time. Um, But yeah, we, we remain really close. And where do you live now? Did you tell me you live in West Hollywood still or you moved to West Hollywood when you first got there? No, I'm in Venice now. Oh, right. You did say that's right. You're in Venice now. And when you yeah. first went to LA, you moved to West Hollywood. That was where you moved to, right? Yeah. So West Hollywood. And then I've, you know, similarly to, you know, my upbringing, I've moved a lot in Los Angeles. I was in West Hollywood. Then I lived in the Valley. Then I lived on the East side in Lincoln Heights, then MacArthur Park, Hollywood Hills. So I popped around quite a bit. But Venice, you would say, is probably the best place. I mean, that's when you know when Brad and I talk about moving. Not that we would, but I say I would move to Venice Beach. That's where I would move to Venice Beach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, 
It's close to like the idea of maybe maybe like the Hamptons in as much as it's somewhat walkable in ways that most of Los Angeles isn't walkable. So there, you know, there are times when I park my car and I don't, you know, I don't use it for a couple of days because I'm able to walk and do everything I need locally. It's funny, right before COVID, uh, there was a party in Venice Beach when I was in LA. Brad was Mm -hmm. not with me. I was with my nephew. It was kind of like a business party. We went Mm -hmm. to this um, adorable house, just maybe four blocks from the beach, you know, four, you know, which felt like long blocks, but it was beautiful. Tiny little house. And we asked how much it was going for. And they said something like $625. And I'm six, six, they worded it in a way that made me think it was 625,000. It was a Mm -hmm. tiny house. It was going for over $6 million. Wow. I mean, is that crazy or what? Yeah. I mean, the real estate market here is absurd. You know, it was beautifully renovated. It was, it was just renovated, beautiful, but it was a tiny house. It was adorable with a backyard, a front. I'm thinking, oh, that's not bad. <laughs> it was- yeah, then the last like five or six years with Silicon Beach happenings, like all of the tech folks moved down here. And so, you know- They inflate got- the prices, right? Don't they inflate it? Yeah, because you've got all the folks working for Google or Snapchat or any of the other, you know, dot-coms that are, that are blowing up and, and uh, they really shifted the market. So you're seeing a lot of, you know, uh, houses being flipped and- right rates going through the roof. And I'm sure people ask these crazy amounts of money, like 6 million, and they wind up selling for maybe, you know, under four or 4 million. I think it just starts off that way. You know, actually, I think the market is such that folks are getting above asking and often for cash. Yeah. Yeah. And the taxes are so high in California that (laughs) it amazes me that prices of the homes are still being sold over the asking price. Yeah. Wow. So what are you doing today? I don't mean today, literally, but are you still doing the same thing with the company that you're with? No. So after LA Stage Alliance, I went and worked for a performing arts venue, a 1,700-seat theater that presented music, theater, and dance. I did that for six years, and I've just launched a coaching and consulting practice now. That's exciting. Yeah. So working with, you know, individuals, individuals. creatives, uh, there's sort of two sides to it. One side, uh, I've just started a training program with the Flow Research Collective. So looking at helping folks and organizations find themselves in flow state more frequently. So there's What do you a, mean by flow state? I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Yeah, no worries. Um, so there was a, a Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, and he had a book called Stealing Fire. And so flow state is the neurological state when you find yourself in in total flow where you don't have a sense of time. Like, you know, if you were a workaholic and you're, you know, you're totally engaged with the project at hand. So think about Navy SEALs when they're in operation, right? They're all in total sync with one another to accomplish the mission or similarly in, in less threatening circumstances, an orchestra. When an orchestra is fully in the music and feeling the vibe of one another and they're in that flow state. So what Stephen and the uh, Flow Research Collective have done is working with PhDs and and scientists, they've put together the process of what aspects of your life need to be in place to find yourself in flow, flow state more frequently. Okay. How are you helping consult? I mean, by consulting, how are you, what are you doing exactly by consulting? Let's say I wanted to hire you to help me stay in a flow state because I can't, as you can tell, I'm all over the place. (laughs) Sure. So, 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 so we would, we would break down sort of, you know, 
what you want to be doing, where you where you see your trajectory, what you want to accomplish in your life in in the world, and then break down those goals into smaller, more manageable chunks and do things like we were talking about the uniforms, right? One of the things that prevents folks from getting into flow is their brains processing too much information, right? So how can you lighten the cognitive load of what your brain's processing? So there are there, are there certain habits or structures or processes that you can introduce into your weekly flow that will allow you to not have to stressing about what you're going to wear every day, that type of thing. Right. right. So one of them, right, would be not stressing about what you're going to wear. You know what you're going to wear. So that is out of your mind. Now you don't need to worry about that. You can focus right. on something more important. Exactly. Exactly. So, so what are those, you know, what are those chunks throughout the week that can lighten up the, the cognitive load? Um, and then there, you know, similar processes like that, like, you know, one, one of the things that uh, encourages folks um, to be more in state of flow is are, is their purpose and their passion connected, right? So what is the change that you want to see in the world? You know, if you're working for a very specific um, purpose, your passion can fuel that. Um, but understanding what your unique con contribution to that purpose might be, you know, with a with like a big, hairy, audacious goal or something that you want to accomplish, like not something that you can do in one or two years, but let's say five years out, and then unpacking what would need to be in place for you to accomplish that goal. So it sounds a little bit like cognitive therapy, which I've never gone to, but I've heard that's a little bit what cognitive therapy is about when you go to a therapist that practices cognitive therapy. Do you see a similarity with cognitive therapy and that kind of consulting? I mean, it um, sounds like a good thing, but I'm, I'm just saying it's a good thing, but it sounds similar to me. I don't know. Sure. I mean, the, the, the irony is the, the other aspect of what I'm doing is more in a therapeutic and a healing context. So I think more with cognitive therapy, what you're, what you're doing, and I'm, I'm postulating here, is going back and unpacking traumas, right, in a talk therapy uh, context. Oh, or, I didn't or, know or, they or do container. that. Yeah. I didn't know they do that in cognitive. I thought it was the present I, here and now. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know either, but I'm so guessing. my issue is this. My yeah. issue is I'm always thinking and worrying about things, you know, because it's always back to me, Terrence. Mm -hmm. Everything. Mm -hmm. comes, why do you think I started this podcast to get free help, free advice, free mental health specialists? That's sure, the only sure. reason why I did it. Um, yeah. My issue is that I'm always thinking about the future of things I can't control. And that stops mm -hmm. me from doing things that really need to be done today. Things that maybe mm -hmm. can help me in my uh, career you know, in, in many different aspects of what could be done today, I always worry about the future, the future of my kids, what's going to happen. And, you know, I've gone to therapy, not cognitive therapy. I went for real psychotherapy, which says mm -hmm. a lot about me. And I was told, you know, you have to learn to live in the moment, learn to live in the moment. You can control what's going to happen. And it sounds logical. Mm -hmm. And I want to live that way. It's just so much easier said than done. It's not something that is so easy. Is that something you can help somebody do if they hire you as a consultant? I, I would say broadly, yes, because I think part of what we would end up doing is un unpacking what happened, what existing traumas are in place that contributed to that way of being for you. Right. And so I would I would agree. Certainly one needs to live in the moment. But if you've got long-term goals and if you're saying that you're talking about you know living in the future well what is that vision of the future 
you know, what is the blueprint? How have you architected this idea that you see down the road? And then how do we break that down into manageable steps to get to get there for you to realize that so that you're not just continuously spinning your wheels? So this will help me maybe to start doing the things instead of putting them off because my brain is preoccupied with things that are not important at the moment. Exactly. Right. And leveraging and maybe, you know, unpacking and leveraging the way that you think to your advantage. So maybe part of the, you know, the scenario planning, the constant scenario planning that you're doing, maybe there are ways to simplify that or not let it get you stuck. Right. I think so, so often like creative folks or business people find themselves in a sort of stagnant period you know, and, and how do you help them break through those blocks and become, you know, and, and, and progress towards their goals. So how did you, I mean, did you, did you go to school? Was this part of your training or did you have to go for different training in order to, to do something like this, to be coaching uh, people? So, so I am going through a training with the Flow Research Collective, um, but also for the last eight years, I've taught at a distance learning program at Goucher College. I've taught new ventures in arts administration. And oh, I you, realized, go ahead. No, I was going to say you do so much. It's, it's hard to keep <laughs> up with. There are so many layers. I feel like such a loser now to you. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do a lot of things, but but in you know in the, in the last eight years, the way that I structured my syllabus and my course is I would take uh, these students through the idea of launching an idea and going to a pitch meeting. So in our fourteen or fifteen weeks that we would spend together, they would take an idea. We would you know identify the aspects of their personality, their passion, their purpose that would contribute to that idea or that project being a success, and then build build to what would be a pitch meeting um, for them at the end of the end of the course. And I realized in doing that, that what I was doing is I was coaching these students on launching a, proje- a, a project. And last year, when uh, obviously the pandemic hit and the social justice movement, um, you know, the all, all the attention that got shifted in, in that way, I realized, oh, I can go back to my syllabus. And this is really a, a group coaching program that I've launched. So I decolonized my syllabus, you know, ensured I had gender equity uh, in in the readings, and I realized that I could take what I had been doing for the last eight years in a you know in an academic setting and apply it more broadly, and make money. Exactly, and be my own boss. And be your own boss. It doesn't get better than that. Um, yeah. Don't you think COVID for a lot of people, and I know you must agree with this. I think uh, was a trauma for a lot of people. I think a lot of people. I think you can be very helpful for a lot of people that are still traumatized over COVID. I mean, there are certain traumas in life that you know you have with a parent, you know, either dying or just what you go through in family life. But I think for some people, COVID in itself was so traumatizing. It's hard for people to get back on the horse, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think particularly because we're going to be living with COVID for a long time. Right. And so I think it was such a foundational shift to status quo and the, the reactions to it exacerbated what's been happening politically and culturally. And so I think for, for, yeah, I think highly, highly traumatic. I think there's going to be mental health implications for a long time to come. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much uncertainty. I mean, even for uh, Brad and I, 
I mean, we live in New York City. We come to the beach, you know, for summers and on weekends, but yet still there's so much uncertainty. We don't know where we're going to wind up. We're, we might be moving out of the city. We're not sure. We don't know where we're, what we're going to do. It's just the uncertainty could be, could drive somebody crazy. It could make you stagnant. The uncertainty can actually make people stay stagnant. Yeah, I think, you know, I think for a lot of folks, it, you know, it forced the turtles back into their shells, right? Yeah. They're like, I'm scared, I'm scared to come out. But I think, you know, what the pandemic brought to light is how precarious the status quo in our systems are. So what's the name of your consulting firm? Uh, just my name, Terrence McFarland. So TerrenceMcFarland.com. TerrenceMcFarland.com yeah. for people, if you want to get an idea of how it can be to really, really, let's say, clean up your clutter in your brain. Is that a good way sure. to say it? Clean out sure. the clutter in your brain and really focus on today and focus on how you can make your life better. Go to TerrenceMcFarland.com. Terrence, right. this was really a pleasure. I love speaking to you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to see your face on the screen. Hello to Brad Same and here. everyone. Brad, he says yeah. hi. Brad, he said, don't, don't bother him anymore. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Terrence, I love it. You get me. You're so not like me because you seem very zen and very calm. But what I love is that you're so easy going to anything I say you laugh. I love that. I'm a, I'm a go with the flow kind of guy. But yeah, the, the zen and the calm came baked in from an early age. It did, right? Do you know Brad's brother? He lives in, uh, he lives in L.A. I, I see him on, on social media, but we haven't run into each other in okay. years and years. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe you will. Because he, he lives. Where does he live? Do you know, Brad? Where? Hancock Park is where he lives. Oh, yeah, it's it's far away, though. It's far yeah. from Venice, I think, Hancock yeah. Park. But, yeah, I'm sure you'll run into him somewhere. Brian gets around. Now that COVID is, you know, maybe lifting a little. I don't know. Going back. Who knows? Anyway. Let's hope. Let's hope. I look forward to seeing you in yeah. person, though. Likewise. All right. Be thanks, well. Terrence. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.